from KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Krista Tippett is the host of NPR's On Being. Trained as a journalist, she went on to earn her Master's of Divinity degree at Yale. She's the author of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. And as she's traveling around the country to discuss her book, she stopped at KBOO to talk with me about it. Welcome, Krista Tippett, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you. So glad to have you here. Let's start off with the big question here. In the biblical book of Job, the character Job waxes poetic and then says, where shall wisdom be found? And so then Job answers his own question and says, God, and that's kind of... Not really an answer. <laughs> so what do you think? Where has Where is wisdom to be found? Well, first of all, can I say that no one has started out any interview I've done for the book ta- asking me about Job, and I love it. <laughs> um, oh, well, I uh, perhaps just a little bit like Job. I don't want to compare myself to Job, but just a little bit like Job. When I first started working on this book, I had a lot of lofty chapter titles in mind. And as I really drilled down into, you know, got my hands around this thing, what is wisdom as I've experienced it in my life of conversation and sitting with some of the great wise people, both famous and and not famous in our mm-hmm. world today, um, I, I, I came closer and closer to, you know, ordinary time. It Wisdom is found in the way we move through this minute and the next minute and the next one after that. The the raw materials of wisdom are, you know, in the words we speak and the our, the physical imprint we make on the world, um, how we're able to take in pain and loss and integrate those things into, into our wholeness as we move forward, mm-hmm. um, how we're able to take pleasure and delight and, and, and be in awe. And I think that's a little bit where Job ended up as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I have uh, in my hand my f- I have in my hand my phone, um, which has more knowledge than anybody has had throughout history, right at my fingertips. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's wisdom. How, how do how do we transfer that what we know from our technology and everything we have into wisdom? Yes. Well, all of that knowledge in your phone is information. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's real, but I think wisdom is about a next step, which is discernment. And wisdom is also about uh, how we live. It's like it's what we do with the knowledge we have. And I think that a, a, a litmus test of wisdom is not just what it possesses, but the effect it has on others, the mm. imprint it makes on the world. In your book, you talk about the the noisy center, and then kind of the uh, the margins, the the people, perhaps people or places or sounds or experiences on the edge. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, well, the noisy center is uh, what uh, rivets us. It mm-hmm. is, um, you could say, the stage we watch. It's what fills the stage that we watch, which. Uh, it's the stage of media and politics, and um, uh, it's 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 telling us something, uh, but it's it's not it's not telling us the whole story of who we are and what we're capable of. And a lot of the voices and lives which are 
nourishing uh, our 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 common life, which are healing, um, which are creating new generative realities, kind of creating the world we want to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those people have a quality of humility about them. Um, a lot of those lives are quiet rather than noisy. And um, so when I, you know, when I talk about the noisy center, I'm also urging us to pay attention to what's not in the noisy center, but is just as real and just as powerful in its way and important for us to be looking for. You know, if it's quieter, we have to actually actively listen for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's not in the center, but in the margins, which is where change has happened across human history, uh, it's not going to present itself to us. We have to look for it. And I think that is important work. It's, I, that's an important spiritual discipline for the 21st century, where we are so bombarded with so much that comes straight at us, but we can't let that fill our imaginations about what is real and powerful and possible. Krista Tippett, my guest on Progressive Spirit, Becoming Wise, an Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living is her book. On Being is her radio show. Uh, I had a couple of questions from my Facebook friends. I asked them, what should I ask her? I saw, I saw something Did on Twitter. Yes, yes. <laughs> and here, here they are. I'm going to give a couple of them just right in a bunch because mm-hmm. I think they're all related. It says, it often feels like she's interviewing her guests to broaden her own understanding. Is that true? Has she ever revealed her own spiritual roots? She always asks her guests about theirs. <laughs> right. And uh, have her beliefs changed over the course of her work? Um, so I think the, f- the first two are very connected. Um, actually, one of the really challenging things about writing this book, and one reason that I had to start over and over, that I had a lot of bad drafts, is that I... Um, am usually you know in in my radio podcast mode i'm you know i'm i'm present mm-hmm. and so i can see even how someone would say i'm in there i mean i'm in there to learn but the conversation is not about me mm-hmm. and so and but but what i realized is in order to 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 write what i had to write i had to take seriously that i am the connective tissue between cuz i i wanted to share this kind of cumulative conversation that happens in my head between these different people and that i am the connective tissue but even more you know what i've learned in doing this work is that it, you know i invite people to speak at the intersection of what they know and who they are what they think and how they live. And what I've learned about that intersection is, you know, among other things, it is listenable. It actually activates the imagination and the memories and the experiences of the person who's listening. Um, so uh, so I, I had to put myself in the book. So I actually did write about, you know, my spiritual background. And I actually got more honest about that in the course of writing the book than I have really been even when I have talked about it before. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I guess to the, to the question of, you know, whether I'm doing this for myself, you know, I, I think, and you experienced this too, I think part of... Uh, you know the magic of radio is that is that on the one hand you and I are sitting here alone together in a studio having this intimate conversation, but when it is transmitted out, everybody who's listening is also in the room, mm-hmm. and if I am, 
here as a human being kind of on behalf of others, like using this as an experience to learn and to search, then I'm a better steward of that of that responsibility and that that privilege I have to be in the room. Yeah. And your spiritual roots um, connected. You, you write about your grandfather, um, Southern Baptist preacher. Mm-hmm. I'm, I grew up a Southern Baptist, too. Uh, so what, uh, that's part of your spiritual root? To his 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 uh, spirituality Absolutely. and his, yeah. his wisdom. He was the towering religious figure uh-huh. of my childhood, and uh, he was full of contradiction. Which uh, I realized that those contradictions were formative for me as much as the very clear doctrine that he preached. You know, he was pretty much a hellfire and brimstone okay. preacher, and. And he had lots of rules, you know. <laughs> Anything that <laughs> yeah. might be fun was probably forbidden. Um, Don't but drink, smoke, chew, or hang smoke. around. Well, the not even just that. <laughs> it's like everything was a slippery slope. So you okay. couldn't just not yeah. have sex, not drink, not smoke, but you couldn't dance or wear shorts or play cards or go swimming because yeah. these would all potentially lead to temptation. But my grandfather, I also, even as a very young child, was aware he was a really passionate person i think he was a little bit he was he was keeping his own passions at bay okay with his rules and he was uh funny so when he talked about god there was nothing funny about it and you know heaven was a really scary small place where even methodists weren't getting in (laughs) really but my grandfather you know, the way he walked through the world, he was so loving. He was so generous. He, he told corny jokes. Um, so I, I think he also had a lovely big mind, but he had a second-grade education. Hmm. So I, I felt like he was frightened of his own powers of questioning and, you know, the, the, the critical attention he might pay to his Bible. Um, but I think even experiencing his fear and maybe the kind of curiosity that that generated in me as a child. I think all of those things form us. You know, it's the, Mm -hmm. we get the full body experience of the adults in our lives, even the things they're not saying. In fact, maybe more the things they're not saying. Right, right. Um, I get asked this question a lot and I don't know how to answer it. Um, So I'm going to have you help me out with it. I get asked, do you believe in God? And so if you were asked that question, how would you answer that? Well, okay. So I have not – so recently a few people have asked me that question. And and, uh, one thing I say nicely (laughs) is there's a reason that I don't ask people that question. Uh Uh-huh. Um, that is just about the most intimate thing you could ask somebody, just like that, straight on, mm-hmm. linear, literal. Um, also, you're, you're being asked to put words around something that is going to defy words. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those of us who work with the notion of God, and, I, you know, I would say, I don't. I mean, one thing I think about God at this point in my life is that the word is just too small. Yeah, and we we do have ways of of coming at it, and I and I and I hope those are not just as much words as they are ways of being, practices, ways we are. Um, but it cannot be captured in a Q and A like that question answer. Th- this part of life is. Uh, it's, it's just as intimate as anything we could try to talk about. 
what I will say is one way I found to get um, not around that, but kind of move into it, mm-hmm. is this question I ask people, which is this the spirit about the spiritual background of your childhood. Yeah. So on the one hand, I I think most of us, uh, unless we have a pat answer, which is going to be boring, right? Most of us will be very tongue-tied by this question, you know, who is God? Yeah. Um, on the other hand, like who or what is your spiritual life now? On the other hand, if you ask somebody about the spiritual background of their childhood, the spiritual and religious background of your childhood, I have learned that, first of all, everybody has a story. And this is true whether they you know, are an atheist, devoutly Christian, Jewish, Muslim. There's a story. Um, and, that, and, and, and that is actually, that question takes us, takes, takes people into a soft, searching part of their experience where a lot of questions live. And you know, when we talk about religion in public, we're usually not talking about questions. We're talking about answers. But that part of our history holds really searching questions. And that, and it's a, it's, it, it, that inquiry plants the conversation in a much softer and more searching place than we usually start our public conversations about anything. Yeah. So what was your spiritual background as a child? Yeah, well, <laughs> okay, now you're holding me to it. Um, yeah, so so when I was writing this book, I realized that this answer of my grandfather's religiosity, which is always the answer I've given and is a great story, is not the whole story. Uh-huh. And that um, I also... Um, I think this is something people have taught me, too. You know, the person who answered that question uh, with one word, loneliness. Hmm. That's a spiritual background, too. Yeah. So uh, if I am more searching, um, I I grew up in a family where uh, my father had been adopted when he was three in a way I don't think people are adopted anymore. Just, I mean, it almost sounded like he was kind of dropped off one day with Mm. a brother and a sister. Knew what his name was. Um, His mother tried to kidnap him back a couple of years later. So I I grew up in a house where my father, where we, my father was having nightmares many nights that his mother was coming to get him. Mm. But in the daylight, we never talked about this. And so there was this, it was almost like like our, his family history, my family history was like those places on ancient maps where there's a line that says, you know, here be dragons. Yeah. And so I grew up with the big questions not being, not just not asked, but not askable. Okay. And so one of the, I had this incredible kind of discovery in the process of this writing that, you know, uh, uh, part of my passion for asking questions that are hard to ask mm-hmm. <laughs> might <laughs> just might trace back to that that longing in me. That this was kind of an amazing thing about um, about doing this 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 writing. And you went and in your career, 
into politics, kind of where all the action is um, as a journalist. And then you turn to spirituality, religion. I don't even know what to call it. You know, uh, my yeah. program used to be called Religion for Life. And then people would call up and say, religion's for death. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I had to change it. I don't even know what to, I call it, progressive spirit. Yeah. What do we call all of this? Yeah. But anyway, you went, but it is about big questions mm-hmm. or bigger questions. And it was how did it, was it, again, back to kind of the childhood part of asking the big questions you decided to turn to religion or spirituality or whatever um, we were talking about? Well, I was I was in, in Divided Berlin. I was working with these great big geopolitical questions uh-huh. and um, – but started to – in a place where there were these big geopolitical realities, which, I, you know, you could call that was the noisy center there. But I loved people on both sides of that wall in Berlin and I – saw that uh, those power dynamics and even those nuclear missiles weren't what or and whether people were on the western side of that wall and had capitalist everything or on the eastern side and had kind of communist want, want uh, the people's uh, humanity human beings capacity to create a life of beauty and dignity and intimacy or a life of emptiness is not defined by the circumstances you're given and I I, I just got really curious about that. And that, that led me to, and as you say, these I, I, I started asking spiritual questions, but it was a long time before I would have called them spiritual. I couldn't even believe I was thinking in those categories yeah. or using that language. Um, and then I studied theology because I really had to know if I could take this seriously and whether theology could address the complexity of the world I'd experienced. And I, I found that it that it could and that it was this thrilling discipline in our midst that even somebody who went to church three times a week hadn't really known about. Did you have to explain yourself? I mean, it, think oh. religion and spirituality on the media. No, it was a big – I had to fight for this for years. And um, I first started talking about it in the late 90s, early 2000s, a time of a lot of strident – toxic religious voices in American life, mm-hmm. uh, very much uh, amplified by journalists who were happy to hand the microphone to those voices because it made for entertaining lightning rod media. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first pitched this in public radio, uh, what came back at me was, well, we don't think, we're not sure public radio listeners are religious. <laughs> Which is just uh-huh. such a joke, right? I mean, yeah. or, you know, like Pope Corito's <laughs> listeners don't have spiritual lives. They've uh-huh. evolved beyond that. Um, and if they do, uh, you know, and it, we don't know if this is worth an hour, an hour a week. And and if they do have spiritual lives, they probably want to keep it private. Um, but mm. part of the problem in my mind was that we had, we had and still to some degree have handed over the religious voice to... Uh, to strident, uh, to you know, very s- small sliver of of what it of of the experience of what it means to be religious and spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, and then nine eleven happened, and then what I heard was, religion is the cause of the worst problems in the world today. How can we create a show around religion? And I said, well, you know, first of all, you could say the same thing about politics. And if if that's true, all the more reason that we have to find nuanced, you know, new ways in to to break the subject open, to analyze it, to 
to let it have a more well-rounded place in, in our common life. You know, your chapter on flesh, and I'm thinking uh, about when we, we talked earlier about God or meaning or where it all is. And I'm wondering, is it, have you noticed in talking with your conversation partners that God has kind of come back to earth <laughs> in, in, in the dirt, in the flesh, in the body, as opposed to kind of an escape? Yeah, absolutely. I think of um, Kate Braestrup, who's in the book. She's a Unitarian Universalist minister, a chaplain to the game wardens of Maine. Hmm. And, you know, she says, I love this, because there's a lot of talk about spiritual but not religious. She says, yeah. I'm religious but not spiritual. <laughs> okay. And, you know, that for her, yeah. God is all about what happens between human beings. Okay. And and that's that's enough and that's good enough. Yeah, yeah. And and your chapter also moving to kind of to love, you know, with the Beatles, you know, all you need is love. Yeah. Jesus said, love your enemies, pretty tough. I don't know, was he right? Um, what do you, you talk about love being muscular yeah. and uh, resilient. Yeah. Well, I think love of enemies, uh, uh, I think we've barely even tried that. Yeah. And if it is possible, it will have to be something muscular and resilient. I like to pose this um, thought experiment that if when – you know, Christian voices um, kind of willfully took themselves out of public and political life in the mm -hmm. early 20th century. There was there was a history to that. There was a moment. And then there was this reassertion of Christian voices in the latter part of the 20th century. Uh, it was all about issues, and it was about a few issues. Mm -hmm. And it was about it, – it was kind of voices that squeezed themselves into political boxes and political modes of argument in order to be heard. But what if – what if instead when Christian voices reinserted themselves into American political life, it had been done in such a way that we would all have learned what love of enemy could look like in public life and in politics? You know, mm -hmm. then we would not then I think the word religion itself would not be so fraught. Don't think we'd be wringing our hands about this influence. Uh, but I think, you know, if, there, if there's one thing I'm, I feel passionately about that I hope comes through the book that, you know, um, what interests me, what is noble is, 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 is the imprint we make, like how we connect the things we care about and who we are and how we live. Uh, that's, that's wisdom. That's the measure of wisdom. Uh, when it comes to love, that's kind of the great frontier. Yeah. And you talk about uh, your guests of... Of, of those who've done it. There is good news in Aspen, There's, and there are people yes. who do find a way to love despite it all. So many people. Uh, I, I was trained as a news reporter, right? Mm -hmm. I was trained in another kind of journalism, and uh, I, I'm, I'm very aware, I'm increasingly aware that this, this discipline, this profession of journalism, which is so important culturally, just has this incredibly sophisticated body of knowledge and kind of toolkit for reporting on what is catastrophic, you know, the crisis, the failure, the corruption, you know, has this, these sophisticated ways of analyzing that and taking it apart, thinking it through, laying it out. Uh, and, and by contrast, a very primitive toolkit and even vocabulary 
for exposing goodness, you know, mm. which also is everywhere. It's, mm-hmm. and, and it is even, even in those worst stories of the worst of what happens in, in human society, uh, you know, there's, there, there are always the stories of hum, human beings who, who rise to, to their best precisely in those moments. And um, we just don't, we don't know how to point at it. We don't know how to talk about it in ways that are as riveting as, as what is bad. Hmm. And, and, and I, I, you know, I, I think that that is uh, a learning curve for journalism and for all of us. Yeah, I, I wonder if it's also a fear we have. I mean, we, we dismiss the kind of programming that you do as, as soft or something. Yeah. And But yeah. I'm wondering if it's people are afraid of the big questions of dying, of grief, mm-hmm. of of life. Uh, and, and so we kind of settle for politics <laughs> yeah. and some of these other, you know, celebrity. Yeah, I agree. Um, we... I think in the 20th century, we kind of tried to bracket out the human condition. It's so messy. It's so full of contradiction. Mm-hmm. We often do precisely the thing we don't want to do that's bad for us, right? Like, yeah. that's part of uh-huh. us. Um, uh, but even but, but then we can soar to these incredible heights that are also kind of inexplicable. You know, I th- to me, this, this is kind of the move of collectively, culturally becoming wiser and not just smarter, deciding that for the first time— we're going to take on ourselves, right? And mm-hmm. I think you're right. The, the things that we attack are kind of sidebars to that mm-hmm. human condition, or they're manifestations of the human condition. And it's easier to analyze the candidate or the campaign or the, the you know, the, the failed policy, it, to analyze things in terms of the economics or politics of it. But if if we don't take on ourselves no we know this in our private lives mm-hmm. you know if we don't actually look at the root of ourselves and our motivations and our actions uh we will repeat the same things and that's what we're i think we're i think we're growing weary of that in political and public life i certainly think the young among, among us are growing weary of that yeah and they're questioning how do we really talk about the heart of the matter Krista Tippett, thank you for being with me today. Um, Thank you for your show, On Being, and thank you for your book, Becoming Wise, An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. Progressive Spirit is a weekly show, free to stations, and available through Pacifica. Catch it via podcast on your favorite podcast app. From KBOO in Portland, I'm John Shuck. Be well.